0: all right so we are back for another session on the providence of god in salvation So i'll just give one text to use as an example paul's first messages that he's ever given that we have recorded in scripture of course he's preached before this but this is the first recorded message two messages of paul he's at the um, synagogue in uh, antioch on their first missionary journey and he preaches a wonderful text about uh, a wonderful sermon on uh salvation in christ as he comes to a conclusion of that first message, he says this, he's talking to his, uh, to his Jewish brothers, so he says, uh, Let it be known to you therefore, brothers, that through this man, clearly, he's talking about Jesus here, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So he's, he's giving the universal offer of the gospel to all who are listening, and by him, look at this, he, here's what the universal offer means, everyone who believes is freed or literally justified from everything from which you could not be freed or justified from the law of Moses. So here is the universal offer of the gospel. Now again, whether we're Calvinists or Arminians, we want to be biblical, okay? I am a Calvinist, but I want 100% of my doctrine of salvation and every other doctrine to be submitted to every verse of the Bible, properly understood in its context. So I wanna believe every verse. I don't. There's not a single verse of the Bible I want to, to disagree with. I wanna properly interpret it, but I wanna agree with everything. So I wholeheartedly affirm this verse, obviously. Here's what you see. Paul is speaking to people, and not every single one of these people is going to be a believer, but he he talks to his Jewish brothers, and he says, through Jesus, almost fell off here, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. This is the indiscriminate proclamation of the gospel. And he says, by Jesus, everyone who believes is justified or freed from everything from which you cannot be justified by the law of Moses. Now, Paul believed, and therefore I believe, in the indiscriminate. Uh, the Old English is the promiscuous uh, preaching of the gospel. Now, th- there's a movement that's happened, especially since the Reformation, generally a smaller movement called hyper-Calvinism. Charles Spurgeon had to deal with hyper-Calvinists. In fact, Ian Murray wrote a little biographical book, a mini book, I have not even read much of it. I need. I, I really wanna read it. It's called uh, Spurgeon versus the hyper-Calvinists. Spurgeon was an unashamed Calvinist, but he detested hyper-Calvinist theology. And I have to say, I wanna say this humbly, it is not uncommon for Arminians to paint real Calvinists as hyper-Calvinists. Hyper-Calvinism is essentially, uh, can take on more of a fatalistic approach, Hyper-Calvinism did not believe in preaching the gospel indiscriminately. Uh, Hyper-Calvinism said you should only preach the gospel to people who showed evidence of being moved and convicted and stirred by the Holy Spirit first. This is a terrible, terrible uh, distortion of this teaching. And and this is where we have to submit all of our theology to every verse of the Bible, because there are elements of Calvinist soteriology or or doctrine of salvation that you can use. you You can see the text of scripture, God chose before the foundation of the world, who will be saved. And then you can make human logical leaps that are not biblical and not submitted to all of scripture. And you can reach very unhealthy, terrible, sinful conclusions. And that's one, is the hyper-Calvinist conclusion that you only preach the gospel to those who show signs of being worked on by the Spirit in a special way. That is not true, and that's not what Paul's doing here. Paul says, no, look, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, to all of you. And here's what it means to proclaim the gospel indiscriminately. It means it's a conditional but real offer of forgiveness by him, Everyone. That's indiscriminate. That's universal. That's genuine. It's bona fide. It's not made up. It's not fake. And yes, you can be a five-point Calvinist and believe in the indiscriminate preaching of the gospel to all. So this is what he says. By Jesus, everyone. And then there's a condition. Who believes is justified is the actual word in Greek. Freed. Saved. Forgiven. That's absolutely true. We've got to believe this, we've got to teach this. Uh, we cannot be uh, ashamed or embarrassed uh, by this whatsoever. So every single person on, on the earth, every single image bearer of God who hears the gospel, they should have forgiveness of sins proclaimed to them. And everyone, every single human being, whether we know if they're elect or not, is has nothing to do with it. Everyone who believes is saved, is justified, is freed from what you could not be freed from the law of Moses. So. It is true that anyone, everyone, who who meets this condition of faith—genuine saving faith—is saved. That is 100% true. This is why I believe in the unashamed, unquestioned, indiscriminate preaching of the gospel. But that preaching is conditional. It doesn't say everyone is saved. Everyone is justified. It says no. Everyone who meets the condition of faith is freed. Everyone who believes is justified. Now let's 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 keep going. So after that sermon, people were deeply impressed. So the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. So here you go. They were filled with jealousy and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him, okay? And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary That the word of god be spoken first to you first to the jew right since you thrust it aside now look look at this since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life behold we are turning to the gentiles now now let's not miss what's going on in this text do you see human responsibility moral accountability and real chosen evil on full display. Yes, God is not forcing these Jews to reject the gospel against their will, okay? That, that would be something more akin to the robot view, right? A, a distorted understanding of reformed theology. We're not teaching the robot view. We're not teaching here that uh, th- these individuals were forced against their will, as puppets on a string, to reject the gospel because of some sort of distorted notion of double predestination, that God was just cooking these people up ready for them to sin. No, no, that's not what this text is getting at. Look what it's saying. And by the way, I do believe in a kind of double predestination, but that's the kind that's very much influenced by how you interpret Romans 9, and that does not contradict what I'm saying right now. I don't believe in what is often thought of as double predestination, because most people think of the two as being symmetrical, as in God saves and judges In the same way and that's not what i'm teaching it's a non-symmetrical or an asymmetrical relationship between how god relates to the elect and the unelect and we'll get into that hopefully but but right now let's look at this so but when the jews saw the crowds they were filled with jealousy where did that come from that jealousy was sinful and it came from within their own heart it was real it was wicked and their will Followed their desires on this in other words. Their evil desires were stirred up by Paul's popularity. See what happened here? What happened? Paul was attracting that is ugly. Paul was attracting the crowds, right? Paul was attracting the great crowds. So because Paul has the crowds on their side, the Jewish leaders are losing the popularity that they so idolize and crave and live for and, in reality, worship. This is not different from in the New Testament Gospels when Jesus is becoming popular. The Pharisees and Sadducees say, we got to stop this guy because he's going to take away our popularity. We might even lose our position, right? So. They're, these particular. This is not true of all Jews any more than, than it's true that all Gentiles here are going to be saved. That's, that's not what we're saying. Just in this particular story, the Jews, that is, the, especially the Jewish leaders in the, in the synagogue, they see how popular Paul is, and you realize what they're really living for is not the true God. If they were truly living for Yahweh, they would accept His Son because His Son is the image of the Father. But they reject the Son, meaning they weren't really worshiping the Father in the first place, these particular people, those who reject the Son reject the Father also. And we find, we find out they were actually worshiping the crowds. Wow! Under the guise of all this religion, all this scrupulous religiosity and rule-keeping, they were actually worshiping the approval they were winning from the crowds, right? And so when Paul gets more approval, now Paul's not worshiping approval, but his preaching of the truth led to him getting attention and popularity in this moment. The whole city gathers together. That flames up the idolatry of the crowds for the, for the Jewish leaders, and so it fills them with jealousy. And guess what? Their jealousy is so intense that their will, their volition, their choice, which is enslaved to sin, but free to choose what it wants, but it's still sinful, their, their wills follow their strongest desire, which right now is to shut Paul down and to get their popularity back because they worship the crowd. So what happens, they're filled with jealousy and so their wills begin to follow their jealousy and what happens, they start to preach heresy. They start to contradict the true gospel. They they choose following their own evil desires because these particular Jewish leaders are dead in sin worshiping the crowds. They choose to contradict what was spoken by Paul, okay? They they contradict what is spoken which is actually true. They, they, They contradict the true gospel and they revile Paul. This is not puppets on a string. God is not forcing them to sin against their will. No, this is freely chosen. If by freely, you mean choosing what they most desire. And that's what they're doing. Verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. So first to the Jew, then to the Greek or the Gentile. Now look at this. Since you thrust it aside. What's it? It is what was spoken by Paul, it's the gospel, right? So they, now did they, did they thrust it aside because God forced them to against their will? No, they freely chose because they're in bondage to sin. They chose what they most desired, which was wicked, which is jealousy, which is hatred, hatred of the truth. They, they therefore throws, chose to thrust aside the gospel. And therefore by doing that, they judged themselves. They didn't know they were necessarily doing this, but they were in effect judging themselves unworthy of eternal life. By rejecting the offer of eternal life, they said we're not worthy of eternal life in the sense of they're not gonna get it. And then Paul says, okay, now we're gonna to turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring, sal- uh, bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now here's, here's the, uh, and, and by the way, that, that means salvation or light going to the Gentile, uh, light going to the Gentiles is the same as salvation going to the ends of the earth. And that's God's desire to save people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, which he is clearly going to do. And here's the amazing thing. When the Gentiles heard this, okay, when the Gentiles heard this, I'm going to erase. When the Gentiles heard this, let's follow this here. Let's think about this. When the Jews, Jewish leaders heard this, they were filled with jealousy and hated it. But when the majority of the Gentiles heard the gospel, when they heard this, what's going on here, they began what? They began rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord. They they responded positively. Now, follow me here. This is not robot joy, and this is not robot glorying. Their wills are not being violated right now. They're doing what they really want to do. And that's how I define free will for which we are accountable, is doing what you want, and if you choose what you most desire, and what you most desire is wicked, you are morally responsible and accountable for that, just like the Jewish people who judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. And if you choose what is righteous and good, you are truly making that choice, but who gets the credit for the good? We know when you choose what is evil, that sin originates in your own heart. But when you choose what is good, you're still following your true choice but where does that inclination of will and heart come from it doesn't come ultimately from within us where does it come from and when the gentiles heard this message of the gospel they began rejoicing that's real joy and that, that real joy, just like the jealousy of the Jews led to their reviling of the gospel in the previous text so now they're rejoicing so jealousy is an inward impulse that led to an outward act of the will. They, they felt jealousy then they reviled Paul here they rejoiced in the in the Word of God internally and it led to them glorifying the Word of the Lord outwardly right so you see how that works your inclination changes or or, or moves a certain way and then your will follows path f- follows in its step. So they rejoicing, they glorifying the word of the Lord. And then here is the absolutely astonishing part. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as. It does not say, look it up in the Greek, look it up in other translations. It doesn't say most of those who were appointed to eternal life believed. I've looked at Armenian commentators on Acts and I've tried to see how they take this. Oh man, it's it's it's, it's really, uh, it, it doesn't work. I, I've looked at several different, I, looked at, I don't remember who I looked at, I think I've looked at a couple of different guys in particular, and just how do you interpret this? It doesn't say God appointed them all to eternal life and some believed, right? It doesn't say God appointed 80% to eternal life and 30% believed. No, it says as many as were appointed to eternal life. Now, Some Arminian commentators try to take a point that here is referring to the individuals. They appointed themselves to eternal life, and so they believed. I'm sorry, this is not, that's not what this means. That that is not the natural reading of this text at all. This is a divine passive. In other words, God is the one assumed to be the subject. Of course, God is the one who appoints to eternal life, right? So, So listen, it doesn't say as many as appointed themselves to eternal life believed. That is trying to wiggle out of the clear meaning of this text. No, it says the exact number of people that God appointed, that God is clearly the divine passive here. It's clearly in effect. God is the one doing the appointing. As many as were appointed by God to eternal life believed. What this is teaching here is not libertarian free will. Libertarian free will says God woos all or as many as he can, and he pours on as much provenient grace as he can. But at the end of the day, the buck stops with us or the decisive, uh, tie breaking vote stops with us or God gets us from a state of locked into a state of neutrality. And then we cast the final vote to go towards God or away from God. Okay. This verse does not teach ultimate self-determination. Because if it did, it wouldn't read like this. It would say something like this As many as believed were appointed to eternal life. That would be an Arminian reading of this text. That's not the way to translate this verse. Go look it up in translations, go look it up in commentaries. It doesn't work that way. That's not how this is to be translated. The Arminian would say, No, no. As many as used their libertarian free will to cast that final decisive vote there to, to believe, because God can't control that. He can't be in control that. He can desire it. He can give you prevenient grace to aid you and help you in the process. But at the end of the day, ultimate self-determining power is what free will is, according to the Arminian. And so you, you make this call decisively, not God. Now, of course, the Calvinist believes that we choose to believe. But the question is, what's the decisive cause for the belief? And this verse says, as many as were appointed by God to eternal life, believed. In other words, this is teaching not libertarian free will, as the Arminian or Wesleyan would would teach, and as most Americans just assume, that's what exists. Ultimate self-determining power is what the will has. But no, this verse teaches something that Reformed theology or Calvinist soteriology have referred to as compatibilism. Compatibilism. And while I admit you, when you first hear about compatibilism, I can hear YouTube comments being written as I say this, right, uh, in in objection. But when you first hear about compatibilism, it does sound irrational. It it doesn't sound like it makes sense. So here's what we got to decide. Is my sense of what makes sense going to be the ultimate controlling factor here? Or is the clear teaching of scripture going to be the ultimate controlling factor? Even if I can't fully explain how it works. And I, I will tell you, I'm being sincere. Now, you can be sincerely wrong. A lot of people are sincere and are wrong. But I am being sincere, and I hope I'm being right as well. I can say this with genuine sincerity. After studying Scripture on this for a long time, uh, I told someone the other day, I've been a Calvinist now uh, for more than two decades, and um, I just turned 36, so I became a Calvinist around age 15. This is even weirder. I became convictionally reformed while I was still a false convert, I didn't become a Christian until I was 16. Truly, uh, truly born again until I was 16. So I was technically reformed before I was born again, which is a very strange thing to be. But I was self uh, self um, aware to the fact that I was convictionally reformed when I thought I was a Christian, but was not yet. So I've been a, I've been a Calvinist for about 21 years and a Christian for about 20 years which I don't even know what to make of that, but that's that's true. So I mean, I've thought about these things for, for quite a while. Doesn't mean I'm, I'm in, inerrant, doesn't mean I can't be wrong. Uh, of course, if I hear a better argument, I would love to hear it, but I'll just tell you, after a lot of years of studying this text, uh, these texts, many texts, Old Testament, New Testament, teaching on them uh, many different times, being asked about them, innumerable times, over the last 20 years by all kinds of different people and in all kinds of discussions. I went to a Bible college where almost all my professors were four or five point Arminians and where almost all my classmates and doormates and friends and guys that I was hanging out with and talking to about the Bible. Almost all of them, without exception, were Arminians. And I love these people and they love the Lord and I love the Lord too. And I, they're a joy to be around. But just, I, I've been in all kinds of discussions on this issue for a long, long time. I would say of all the... Um, controversial things I've debated with people, this has got to be at the top of the list for the last 21 years of my life. Doesn't mean I'm right. Weigh the arguments with scripture. Doesn't mean I'm right. I'm just telling you, this is just something I've thought about a lot. And I will tell you sincerely, after all that time and lots of studying and reading, I am fully persuaded that the Bible teaches, not libertarian free will, that we ultimately self-determine where we go and what we do and whether we're saved or not, but it teaches compatibilism, which means God is the one who ultimately determines the decision of whether we believe or not, yet we are fully responsible for our decision and we really make real choices. God does not uh, ordain sin in the way that he ordains righteousness, just like the sun does not ordain day in the same way that it ordains the night, to use an analogy here, right? from Jonathan Edwards, 300 years ago. You know, right now I can see the bright sun outside through the window. And the sun is sovereign, if you want to speak, you know, I'm I'm using metaphor here, but just, just, just follow me. The sun is sovereign over day and night. Is it not? It controls heat and light and cold and dark. It controls day, it controls night. In the desert, it makes it 120 degrees during the day, and it makes it freezing cold at night. It makes it bright as could be in the day. You can barely even keep your eyes open without squinting, and at night you can't see a thing except the stars up in the sky. So the sun is sovereign over day and sovereign over night. It ordains day, it ordains night. It controls day and controls night, but not in the same way. The sun controls the day or is sovereign over the day or ordains light and heat by producing it out of its very essence and nature. What is the sun? The sun is a medium-sized star, a massive uh, ball of burning gases. I don't understand how all that works, but the sun produces light and heat that you can go outside right now and I can see the light. You can feel the heat all over your arms. If you're at the beach where we were last week, I got skin, steel, peeling off my forehead from the sunburn. You feel it, right? You, you feel the sun, it, it is it is out there. So, But the sun produces day and light and heat out of its very nature. The, the warmth is straight from the sun. I mean, that, that is the sun's warmth you're feeling on your skin. That is the sun's light from eight minutes ago that just reached your eyes right here on earth that is lighting up the whole uh, of the outside world. So the sun controls day by actively, from its very nature, shining and burning that light and heat onto us, and it comes straight from the sun's nature. That's how the sun is sovereign over day. How is the sun sovereign over night and cold? Dark and cold. How is the sun in control of the night, in control of darkness, in control of the cold? How does it ordain darkness and ordain uh, the night? Not in the same way as it controls the day. This is what I mean by God being sovereign over good and evil, over conversion and hardening in a non-symmetrical or asymmetrical or non-mirrored way. The sun controls the night, how? By hiding itself, right? I understand the earth is turning on its axis, but just, just for the metaphor's sake, when the sun goes down in the sun's absence, what is the void that is left? It gets really dark and it gets really cold. And the longer the sun is gone, the darker it seems to get, right? And the longer the sun is gone, the colder it seems to get. The sun can control day and night, but in opposite ways. The cold and the dark do not come from the sun. You cannot blame the sun for darkness. You cannot blame the sun for cold because the sun does not produce darkness. The sun does not produce cold. It is the absence of the sun and the void left in the sun's absence that produces dark and cold. Now, do you see how the analogy works for god's sovereignty over human evil and human virtue over the fruit of the spirit and over the opposite of the fruit of the spirit i think it's clear when i do something truly gracious to someone else out of a genuine love of the lord that is owing not ultimately to me it's not why because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked because Every intention of the thought of man's heart was only evil all the time. Genesis six, verse five, Jeremiah seventeen nine says our heart is deceitful above all things. Ephesians two, one, we are dead in sin following the course of this world, the prince, the power of the air, the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. We were all like nature by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind left to ourselves. When I do something evil, it's coming out of my own fallen evil desires. God simply has to remove his hand of restraining grace or common grace and left to myself, I become what? Less prideful or more prideful? More prideful and so do you, right? For God to harden Pharaoh's heart, it's like taking hot clay, hot wet clay out on a hot summer day in Georgia and putting it down on the asphalt when it's a hundred degrees and the sun hardens that clay. But the sun does not harden the clay by putting dryness coldness and hardness into the clay no the sun simply shines and removes the moisture and as the moisture evaporates out of the clay the clay becomes what it was naturally on its own which is a hardened immovable kind of brick sitting there on the ground right so when god removes his restraining grace when he lessens the intensity of the conscience that he's given us when the spirit of conviction is removed when god removes his grace which he doesn't owe us grace in the first place we are left with our true will on its own, apart from God's help or intervention. And guess what? We are still free to choose, but we freely choose what is absolutely wicked. But God is sovereign over evil the way the sun is sovereign over night. Evil doesn't come from God. God is not creating evil. He's not the author of evil. God is sovereign over evil, God can plan that evil events come to pass like the murder of Jesus. He can ordain it, he can, Acts 4 says he predestined it. Acts 2.23 says he pre-planned the murder of Jesus by the hands of lawless men. God can pre-plan evil, he can ordain evil, but he's sovereign over it the way the sun is sovereign over the night. When God removes himself, evil takes on its full form and true colors. So let's come back here. What do we see here? This is compatibilism. I'm still making real decisions that are free within the limits of my own inclinations and desires. But if God removes himself, my inclinations and desires are enslaved to sin. So I can, I'm free to choose whatever I want, but I only want what is evil. But if God undeservedly, graciously shines the sun on my dark heart, and brings the light and warmth and heat of His Spirit into my soul. If He ordains from eternity past that I, although deserving nothing but hell and condemnation, which is truly what I deserve. If He ordains to appoint me to eternal life, even though I don't deserve eternal life at all, I deserve eternal death, eternal torment in the lake of fire. If God undeservedly for the sake of showing off His grace and mercy appoints me before time, for eternal life, eternal life, then God can move on my heart in such a way that he opens my blind eyes, he unstops my deaf ears, he regenerates my dead, despicable heart, creating a whole new nature, and guess what happens then? Suddenly for the first time, I have desires for God for his own sake. I desire Jesus for Jesus' sake. The glory of Jesus is more overpowering to me than the glory of football, or for me, movies, and editing video, and photography, or hanging out with friends, or whatever it might be, alcohol, drugs, sex, whatever it is, the, the, the common idols. Those are the things that captivated our affections before it was having a good reputation, a good job, a good salary, a nice house, a nice lake house, get some jet skis, whatever it may be. Our heart is wrapped up in these things. Our affections are excited by these things, and therefore our will follows our inclination into those things, and that's why we live for the world. Just like the the Jews in this context, the Jewish leaders, they were living for the approval of the crowds. That's what they live for. And when Paul gets their approval, suddenly they have jealousy and hostility. They want Paul dead, and they they reject his gospel message. Why? Because they're worshiping the wrong thing. But when God intervenes, suddenly, me, I'm a Gentile, right? I hear the gospel and I've been hearing it for 16 years, but all of a sudden, when I, 16, when I run time, I turn 16, I'm hearing the gospel again, and suddenly joy starts flooding my heart in the text. I mean, I, I can remember it, reading parts of the Bible, I've told my story many times, getting thrilled, moved to tears over the text of scripture. Suddenly I'm, I'm rejoicing over the text of scripture. I've never done that before. Suddenly I'm glorifying, The word of the Lord. Suddenly I'm I'm talking to my friends. I mean, we're we're 16 year olds. We're we're driving around, we just got our licenses. Suddenly I'm I'm driving around in the car and I'm talking to my friends about Philippians. Right, suddenly it's nine o'clock at night on my parents' driveway and I'm sitting in the car with Josh, a friend of mine, in his Honda, I think it was. And suddenly we're talking about Philippians chapter two and the story of Epaphroditus, almost dying uh, in his love for, for, for Paul on behalf of the Philippians. 16 year old boys delighting in epaphroditus in philippians 2. where is this joy coming from in the bible where is this glorifying of the word lord this 16 year old kid who all i wanted to do was watch uh quentin tarantino movies and to figure out how to direct like him and uh i i i loved it even the 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 wicked stuff in his movies the perverse stuff in his movies i would be cracking up laughing at evil stuff i wanted to watch all the craziest stuff out there uh all that whatever i could get away with right that's all i wanted to do with my life suddenly my joy shifts. Suddenly my glorify, I'm not glorifying stupid movies anymore, inappropriate movies. Suddenly I'm glorifying Philippians 2 with Josh in the car at age 16 at nine o'clock at night. And suddenly what's going on? Well, here's the question you got to ask. According to Armenian Wesleyan type theology, the view that, how do I say this? Libertarian free will is the answer. Here's what you have to say. Why did some people in this crowd believe, and some people not believe? That, that's the, that's the question you got to answer. Why did some believe? A good number, not all the Gentiles, but a lot of the Gentiles believed, and a lot of the Jewish leaders did not believe. What made the difference? And, and here's where the libertarian view of free will gets into. I want to be respectful. I know that there are Christians who love Jesus better than I do who hold this view. And Jesus died for them and saved them. And I'm going to spend eternity in heaven with them and in the new creation with them. I don't want to disrespect them in some sort of shameful way. But I think that there, there's a mistake here. And let me try to expose it. Why do some believe ultimately and some not? That's the question you've got to answer. No matter what you believe about this, you've got to answer that question. And there's only two basic answers. According to libertarian free will, remember we're locked into sin now before conversion. In heaven and in the new creation we'll be locked into righteousness, we'll never sin again. But how do we get from here to here in the Arminian system? God gives prevenient grace, moves us to a place of neutrality. where we make the final de- casting vote on whether we go back to sin or towards Jesus? And God put, has to put, God has to give grace to put us in the neutral spot but then the casting vote is in our will and it can't be any other way than that. Otherwise they would say, God is forcing us to do something and we're robots and our choice isn't real and our love isn't genuine because God ordained it and therefore it's not genuine love and we can't be held responsible because God was in control of it. That, that's it. But I said, no, no, as a compatibilist, I believe God can ordain my conversion and grant me the gift of faith. And I still make a real willing choice to believe but a choice that is both free in the sense of I'm following my desire, but not violating my will because I'm not being, I'm not doing something against my desires. God has given me new desires and my will follows suit. So I think I'm not a robot. I'm making a real choice according to my will, but it is ultimately ordained by God. To to the libertarian free will person, they would say that's nonsense. You can't have it both ways. And I would say no. Scripture really does teach compatibilism. That God can be ultimately sovereign and I'm making real decisions, but God is ultimately in control finally of those decisions without himself being stained by sin, the author of sin. Uh, like the sun is sovereign overnight without authoring, without creating from its nature dark and cold, right? Dark and cold don't come from the sun. They come from the sun's absence. Sin and evil don't come from God. They come from his absence. But The fruit of the spirit comes from God's presence and the light and heat that come from his very nature so here's the question why do some believe and some not believe in the gospel i want you to answer that in your own heart right now because the libertarian free will answer is you can't believe without God's help you can't believe without provenient grace without the provision of provenient grace that's what some people call provisionism or being a provisionist but even with provisionism and provenient grace, which is not full-blown Pelagianism but semi-pelagianism or typical kind of classical Arminianism, Wesleyan Arminianism, even if you even if you have to have provenient grace in order to be put in a neutral place, the ultimately determining factor is whose will? God's or yours? And according to libertarian free will, by definition, the, the, the very definition of libertarian free will is you are ultimately self-determining. You need God's help, but God's help is not decisive in whether you become a believer or not. God gives you as much help as he can without violating anything. He puts you in a place of neutrality, but who makes the casting decision? Who makes the ultimately decisive choice? By definition, it's you. That's the very meaning, the libertarian free will person would say, of free will. Otherwise, you're not responsible, and otherwise God's the author of sin. They would say, I don't think that's true, but that's what they would say is the implication. Okay, 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 okay. If it is true that the reason why you, maybe you're listening and you're a believer in Jesus right now, if you're an Arminian type or a, a libertarian free will person, if you believe that the ultimately decisive reason why you believed and say your brother is not a believer, or your uncle is not a believer, or your best friend is not a believer, or your sister is not a believer, or whoever, if you believe that the ultimately decisive reason you believed and your brother did not is not God's grace because God gave provident grace to you and your brother. He gave provident grace to you and your sister. He gave provident grace to you and your uncle, you and your father. But if you chose to believe and they didn't, the ultimately decisive reason is because you made a better choice than your brother did if your brother's not saved. Now, that may not sound like a big deal. It may sound obvious to you. Yeah, of course. Sometimes Arminians will say, it was the best decision I ever made. My decision to trust Christ. I'm not saying it wasn't a decision, but here's what I'm saying. If it's ultimately, decisively up to not God's will, but your will that makes the difference, then here's the thing. The most important decision that was ever made in all of eternity regarding you was your decision. The decision that determines whether you will spend eternity in the new creation or in the lake of fire was not a decision God made. God desired you to be saved. He gave you prevenient grace to help you achieve a state of close to moral neutrality so you could make a free will choice that you couldn't have made without his help. But God gave that same, God also desired your brother to be saved and God also gave that prevenient grace to your brother to bring him to that place of neutrality. And your brother, I'm sure, heard the same gospel message you heard growing up. And maybe, I'm assuming he went to the same church you did growing up, hypothetically, you know, I'm making this up. But let's just say you and your brother, maybe have, may have been twin brothers, sat on the same pew every Sunday, heard the same pastor, had the same youth pastor, had the same parents, heard the same gospel, or the same age, had the same provenient grace poured out on you. God worked as hard as he could on both of you, bringing trials and tribulations and pleasant things all into your life, all to bring you to a place of neutrality where you can make that free will choice. And let's say that you, twin A, chose Jesus and believe, and and twin B, your twin brother, chose to reject Jesus. Then the most decisive, most significant, most life-altering, eternity-altering decision that has ever been made in your life is something that you are responsible for, ultimately, let's listen, because I also believe we're responsible. Let's say it more clearly. You are credited with. You can't credit God with your choice to be a believer, which means the most important thing that ever happened in your life, which is choosing Christ, is something that you get the credit for. You say, no, 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 no. I want to give God the credit for that. You can't because your twin brother received the exact same pervenient grace, had the same pastor, heard the same gospel, same sermon, same youth pastor, same parents, same devotionals with your parents growing up, same everything. God poured out the same basic blessings on your twin as on you, gave the same pervenient grace to your twin as to you, tried to save your twin as hard as he did to save you. So at the end of the day, if your twin did not believe and you did believe, it wasn't God's grace that made the difference. God did as much as he could to save both of you as he possibly could. He worked as hard as he could to save both of you. He poured out as much grace as he could. At the end of the day, the difference maker was your will, not God's. Which means even though everything in your Christian heart resists this with all that you have, you get the credit because you made a better, wiser, more spiritual, more eternally life impacting decision to become a Christian than your twin brother did. And therefore, you get the credit for the most important, most decisive, most eternally impacting thing that ever happened in your life. You can't give God the credit for your conversion. Because if God got the credit for your conversion and was working just as hard in your twin, your twin would be converted too. But the fact that your twin rejected God and you accepted God means the difference maker is you. It's your will, you get the credit. But that cannot be. That's not what scripture teaches. Let me check my microphone to see if I'm still on here. That's not what scripture teaches. What does it say? When the Gentiles heard the gospel, they began, suddenly there's joy springing up. Where's that coming from? That's God changing the disposition of their heart, isn't it? That's God opening their eyes to see beauty in Jesus. That's not natural, that's supernatural, that's miraculous. That's regenerating grace right there. They began glorifying the word of the Lord. What happened? Not as many as appointed themselves to eternal life, believed. Then they would get the credit. Then they would get the credit for their appointment. And there would be room for boasting. I know Arminians don't want to boast about their conversion. They want to say, no, to God be the glory for great things he has done. You know, even the Wesleys wrote that hymn. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound by sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed me, followed thee. J.I. Packer said, in a footnote on that, he said, I know the Wesleys were Arminian. I think it was Charles Wesley maybe that wrote that. I know Charles Wesley was an Arminian, but where is your Arminianism now, friend, with that line? Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound by sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, That's regeneration at least. I hope that's what he meant by that. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. He want, even the Wesleys want to give God the credit for their conversion, but... Logically, doctrinally, it is impossible to give God the credit for the fact that you became a Christian. Of course, you could not have become a Christian without God. But God could not have made you a Christian without you. The final decisive vote was in your will, therefore you get the credit. But that's not what the text says. It says, as many as were appointed, not appointed themselves, because whoever appoints gets the glory. Whoever makes it happen is the appointer. If it's you, you get the glory. No, 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 no. As many as God appointed to eternal life. Believed. Now get this. It doesn't say God appointed 70 and 40 believed, in which case God doesn't have final control. He's not finally uh, ordaining the outcome. No, the exact number that God picks, that God appoints to eternal life unconditionally by His grace for His glory, that, that exact same number believes. This is compatibilism, not libertarian free will. Libertarian free will would say God would pick everybody if he could. He's trying to save everybody as, he, as, as much as he can. But ultimately, whoever makes that free will choice of faith, that's the ones that, that, that are, that are going to be saved. They, they get that credit. But no, here it says, who gets the credit for my believing? Who gets the credit? Why was I at 16 rejoicing in Philippians? I couldn't, I, I was in Spanish class in, in uh, uh, what was I, 11th grade? I was in Spanish class in 11th grade. And in the middle of Spanish class, I, I slip my Bible up on my desk. And I'm reading and rereading and rereading Philippians. This is like in like November of 2003, soon after my conversion. Why is it in class, I can't stop reading the Bible? Why am I rejoicing in Philippians? Why am I g- glorifying the word of the Lord? Why am I believing truly for the first time in 16 years? God gets the credit. God appointed me to eternal life and I believe. And You say, well... Um, then that then we're just we're just robots I'd say no 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 that, that's not right L- let, let me walk through some steps here to, to review here just a couple verses later look at this acts 14 verse one very next chapter now at Iconium it's the next city that they're going to after uh, Antioch Pisidian Antioch now in Iconium Paul here and I believe it's Silas uh, Barnabas Paul and Barnabas uh, entered together into the Jewish synagogue So here they're back uh, with the the Jews. They're in the Jewish synagogue. And listen to this, they spoke in such a way, I like this, that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. This shows you that human means in evangelism matters. It's essential. God has ordained that the preaching of the gospel is the necessary means whereby the gospel is communicated normally, if not exclusively in this world, I guess, I mean uh, printing a Bible, and giving it to somebody is not quite the same as just evangelizing them, like telling them the gospel, they can read it and become converted, they can watch it on TV, but generally speaking, evangelism, someone presenting the gospel is how people are saved. They go to the Jewish show of God, they spoke in such a way, you like that? In, in such a way. They spoke in such a way, which means how we speak matters and God ordains the means to bring about the ends, but how we present the gospel matters. We gotta speak in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Now that does not discount what we just read here, which is that um, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So we, we we know that ultimately believing is because God appoints us, that's why we believe. But that does not rule out the fact that how we speak matters. And God ordains the way the manner in which we speak, the accuracy and the passion with which we present the gospel prayerfully, That brings about a great number of Jews and Greeks believing. So John Piper draws out some of these points. I think I added one to these, but he had five points. I I made it six and tweaked the wording. So number one, we just saw in verse 48 of Acts 13, election is not based on foreseen faith. Election is not based on foreseen faith. You, You see it here. It doesn't say that as many as believe God appointed. No, no, no. The appointed to eternal life, The appointing to eternal life creates the belief. God's sovereign choice to regenerate the heart, to give new eyes, new affections, new desires, leads to the will following those desires into genuine faith in Christ. This is not the violation of the will. This is the transformation of the will. We're not doing against what we desire. God changes what we desire by his appointment, giving us joy to glorify the word of the Lord, and we, we put our faith in Christ. So election is not based on foreseen faith. We see that clearly in the text. Number two, right with that, your faith, if you're a believer in Jesus, your faith is owing to, like we just talked about, God's appointing you to life. So this is what I mean by saying that reformed theology, while yes, there are a lot of arrogant reformed people, and man, I'll tell you, I got to watch my tone all the time talking on this stuff because my tone could slip into the same kind of arrogance I'm trying to argue against. But in reality, there should be no more humbling doctrine imaginable than the doctrine of unconditional election. If my faith, if even the fact that I chose Jesus is owing not to my wiser use of libertarian free will than my twin brother i don't have a twin brother but for the sake of that analogy if if, if my brother if i find a twin brother who is not a believer and i was a believer if i said okay I'm a believer because I made better use of my free will and God's provenient grace than he did. He had provenient grace and a will. I had provenient grace and a will. I chose Jesus, he didn't. And if the ultimately determining factor is in my will to cast the final vote, then I simply made better use of provenient grace and the means of grace and my free will than my twin brother did. In which case, even though the Arminian, everything in his impulse as a born again person screams against getting credit for his salvation, he has to admit logically if the difference maker lies in you, then who gets the credit for that? You have to, by definition, if you try to give the credit to God, then why isn't your twin brother saved? Because he did the same thing for your twin as he did for you. So the difference maker is you, so you get the credit, and whoever gets the credit when in regards to salvation, whoever gets the credit gets the glory. But I don't think the Bible is set up to where 99% of the credit goes to God, but then 1% of the credit goes to your will. No, not at all. Just the opposite. My faith is not owing to my will, in which case, we, you know, we, there's a room for credit, for glory. No, my faith is owing to God's appointing me to life. Do you understand how radically humbling that is? Just, just, Ignore a lot of the the questions you may have for a second here, and just think about it. If my faith, if my decision is a real choice, but ultimately determined by God's sovereignty, and His appointing me to life is why I'm a believer decisively, ultimately, do you understand how humbling that is? Even the faith to believe is a gift from God. If God had not sovereignly intervened in my life at age 16, I would still right now be either a nominal Christian or a non-Christian entirely. I would not be a believer. I don't know what my life would be like. I mean, seriously, would I have gotten into drugs, would I have ruined my life with alcohol, what kind of sexual sin would have been, would have been in my life, would I, have, would I have children out of wedlock, I mean, what, what, what kind of devastation would I have brought into this world, seriously, would I be alive right now? I wouldn't be married with kids probably, and if I was, it would be a disastrous situation, and I would be headed towards an eternity apart from Christ but the decisive reason why I'm a believer is not owing to me. It was the best decision I ever made, but it's a decision I never would have made apart from God's grace, and God's grace saw to it that I made that decision decisively. God was the decisive factor. Now let's move to point number three. This does, this, this, we don't, we, let's not rule out number three. We were rescued by God from rejecting Jesus with all our heart and our will." So look, God rescued us from rejecting Jesus with all our heart and will. Those left to ourselves, we were truly of our decision, of our volition, of our choice, according to our deepest desires, rejecting Jesus willfully. God was not forcing us to reject Jesus against our will. We were fully willing to reject Jesus, left to ourselves. We preferred anything to Jesus. I would have chosen in my heart of hearts, I would have chosen uh, movies and film over Jesus, because I did every day of my life. That was my God. We were rescued by God from rejecting Jesus with all of our heart. You say, where is that in the text? we'll go back to verse uh, 46, right here in the middle of this paragraph. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. You see, all of us left to ourselves would thrust aside the word and judge ourselves unworthy of eternal life. Left to yourself, that's what you would do. Like that great song, as I ran my hell-bound race. That means I was choosing of my own choice, sin and evil that was leading to hell. As I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, I didn't care about the fact that I was judging myself unworthy of eternal life. As I ran my hellbound race, thrusting aside the gospel, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state, right? You, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. You appointed me to eternal life. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now, all I know is grace. So we we went through these three parts. Our faith is owing to God. Our sin is owing to us. And had God not intervened, our sin would have of our own choice dragged us down to hell. Point number four. The gospel is to be offered freely, indiscriminately to who? Everyone. The gospel is to be offered freely and indiscriminately to everyone. This is not inconsistent with anything else that's being taught in this passage. I think you have unconditional election taught in verse 48. I think you have the universal offer of the gospel taught in verse 38. Let's go back and look at it. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him, everyone who believes." Everyone who believes. This is the indiscriminate preaching of the gospel. Now, look, everyone, it's true, any image bearer of God who meets the qualification and condition of believing is justified, is freed, is saved. So it's true, anybody who believes will be saved, but who is it who actually believes at the end of the day? Who is it? So everyone who believes is saved, but who actually does believe? As many as were appointed as many as were appointed by God to eternal life, believed. So it's true, anyone who believes will be saved, but only those whom God appoints, and as many as were appointed by God to eternal life, believed. So both of those things are absolutely true. There is no logical or biblical contradiction between these two things that I'm saying. I know some people will think this is a contradiction, but it's in the text, and it's not a contradiction. There is no contradiction between offering the gospel to all conditionally, which is saying this, anybody, if this room was full of 100 people, if I said, any of you, Let's say they're all non-Christians. Any of you who repents and believes in Jesus will be saved right now. That is factually true, period. And yet it's also true that only and all who are appointed by God to eternal life will believe. Those are not contradictory. You offer the gospel to all, God saves his elect. Those God whom appoints brings to faith, but yet we offer the gospel to, to all. So again... We offer the gospel, the gospel is to be offered freely to everyone, no question about it. Don't ever let a hyper-Calvinist tell you that you only preach the gospel to those who seem to be converted or those who seem to be showing signs of conviction of sin of the Holy Spirit. No, uh, Paul on the road to Damascus was not showing signs of conviction of sin when, when Jesus con- con- uh, confronted him. Number five, <clears throat> this is important. God has ordained evangelism, I want, to, I want to make this clear. God has ordained evangelism as a means, a necessary means to bring his elect to faith. God works through means. So I'm here right now in the church, in the gym, uh, and, and I believe God's sovereign will always comes to pass, so it was God's sovereign will that I'd be standing right here right now, but I did not get here by magic. I didn't wake up in the morning, roll over and God zapped me and brought me here. And I just turned, opened my eyes and I was here. No, God can do that. Of course, God can do that. That's called miracle, but God does not normally work through miracles. As in like breaking the laws and the normal laws of nature and physics to, to make things happen, like resurrection from the dead or whatever. God could do that. God does sometimes still do that. But no, the normal way that God brings about ends is through means. And how does God bring his elect to faith? by ordaining evangelism as the necessary means, necessary with the exception of, you know, whatever strange thing God may want to do. I'm, I'm not saying people get saved apart from the gospel. I'm just simply saying uh, God is gonna use normal, normally evangelism to bring about the faith of his elect, perhaps exlu- exclusively in some sense. And we see that in 14.1. Paul and Barnabas, they entered the Jewish synagogue and they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and great Greeks believed. So spoke in such a way that a huge number of people became believers. This does not rule out the verse in just a few verses earlier when as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Doesn't rule that out. No, it's still true here. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And in this case, God ordained that a great number, not just of Greeks this time, but of Jews believed. That's how God does it, but God, God appoints it. And God doesn't just appoint the result, like a miracle, like they get converted out of nowhere, poof, no. God ordains the result, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, which in this case was a lot of Jews and Greeks, but how does God work to bring that about? He ordains the means. Absolutely, He ordains the means. God brought Paul and Barnabas there to the synagogue in Iconium Iconium, and God worked through them and ordained that they speak in such a way that a great number who were appointed to eternal life belief. So God appoints the means and God appoints the ends. God appoints evangelism, God appoints the belief. God works through all of it. So to say like like an extreme hyper-Calvinist, we don't even need to evangelize anybody. You know, that's what John Patton heard. John Patton was gonna go preach the gospel on the Indian, uh, excuse me, on the the islands uh, to cannibals. And there was an older gentleman in his church And who who knows where he was at with the Lord? Maybe he was a true believer, but he was mistaken here. Uh, He was speaking as an accidental hyper-Calvinist probably. But uh, John Patton said, I need to go preach the gospel to these cannibals. They're all going to perish and go to hell. And this old man said, um, if God ordains to save the cannibals, he'll save them without your help. Well, that's just a misunderstanding of how God works through means. God did ordain to save tens of thousands of those cannibals over the course of centuries in Burma, I believe, right? I think it was in Burma. I may be getting confused with uh, with John Patton and the other guy, but uh, sorry, Adam Judson. But but whatever the case is, God did ordain to save tens of thousands of the cannibals. And guess how he did it? Through John Patton going there, risking his life, giving decades of his life, watching his child and wife die right in front of him, uh, all this horrible stuff happening. But God worked through that as the means to bring about the, the, the conversion of tens of thousands of those cannibals. So. Don't say, well, if God is gonna ordain someone to believe, doesn't matter how you speak, doesn't matter what you do. No, 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 no. God is going, if God has appointed people to believe, he's going to appoint uh, messengers to go speak. So back here to the list, the gospel is to be freely offered to everyone. God has ordained evangelism as a means to bring about his elect to faith, to bring his elect to faith. Number six, this is an important one. Who are the elect? We discover who the elect are. How? When they respond to the gospel in faith. We, we discover who the elect are when they respond to the gospel in faith. We don't know who the elect are. <laughs> the building's always moving. I'm like, someone in here. I hope not. Uh, the, we discover who the elect are when they respond to the gospel of faith. Until they respond to the gospel, we don't know who the elect are. Now, listen. Just like uh, evangelism uh, well, is, is an ordained means of God to bring about the faith of his elect, so is prayer. So don't ever think prayer doesn't matter because God's gonna save who he's gonna save. No, our prayers are real means God ordains to use to bring about the real salvation of his people. So James 4.2 is still true. As I say this as a Calvinist, you have not because you ask not. And when you ask, you ask wrongly to spend it on your pleasure so you don't get it there either. So so James is saying, you have not because you ask not. I agree with that 100%. I believe that if God's people prayed more zealously for the conversion of more people, more people would almost certainly be saved. And I say that as someone who believes in unconditional election, why do I say that? Because if God ordains to save people, He generally ordains that people passionately pray for those people, not always, but frequently. I mean, how many parents have just soaked their pillows in tears over the lostness of their wandering children as teenagers, pleading with God to save them? Do You think that the prayers of the mother in her prayer closet, the father on his knees in his office, do you think that those prayers have nothing to do with the salvation of their children? No, God ordains means to accomplish ends and the prayers of God's saints are real means that actually affect the salvation of God's elect. Prayer's not a waste of time. In fact, I'll put it this way. If libertarian free will is true, then you really don't have a reason to pray. Because if God is already working as hard as he can to save as many people as he can, he's already pouring out his prevenient grace, To try to bring their will to a place of neutrality. He's already bringing obstacles and pleasures and pains into their life to try to wake them up to what they're trying to do. He's already trying to do everything he can to save as many as he can, if that's already true. And if God cannot decisively grant faith to where the person will necessarily and freely choose Christ, if God's not going to ordain the conversion in that sense, then why are you praying? Why are you praying? God's already doing everything he can do. There's nothing more God can do, according to to the typical picture of the non-Calvinist God. He's doing as much as he can to save as many as he can. He's trying to pour out as much pervenient grace as he can. He's doing as much as he can. He wants to save as many as he can. At the end of the day, he cannot decisively make the difference. God does not decisively make that call in libertarian free will views. So why are you praying? You'd be better off praying to the sinner than praying to God, because you wanna pray to the person who makes the decisive difference in conversion. And if the most important decision I ever made is ultimately owing to my own free will choice, yes, with God's help, but ultimately the buck stops with me. Ultimately, I cast the deciding ballot. I'm the one that makes the ultimately decisive difference. I'm the, I make ultimate self-determination with my will. Then who should you be praying, praying to? You should be praying to the sinner because God doesn't control ultimately in his sovereignty that decision the sinner does. So better off praying to the sinner than praying to God because God can't do that. But if God is truly sovereign over salvation, then the only person to pray to is God and our prayers can make real differences because God ordains the means and the ends and the means make real differences to the ends. If God in his sovereignty has ordained that you eat food today, the normal way he will bring about the food in your stomach, put it this way. If God has ordained that your stomach be full of food around 1 PM today, then you know how the normal means God is going to bring about to do that? He could do it miraculously. He could snap his fingers and put fully uh, chewed up food, as gross as that is, in your stomach without you having to open your mouth, right? God could use a feeding tube. And perhaps for some people, that is what's actually happening, you know, sadly, through, through suffering. But for most people today, if God has ordained in his sovereignty that their stomach be full of food by 1 p.m., the normal way that that happens is through the means of you making a sandwich or going through a drive-through, or making a salad, or putting something in the oven, or reheating something from last night, and then choosing to get out your fork or whatever and put it in your mouth, chew it, and swallow it, right? Those means are necessary to put food in your stomach. I mean, with rare exceptions like feeding tubes and the miracle of God just putting food in your stomach, which I don't think he virtually ever does. Outside of those miraculous, or, or, or in a suffering situation, unusual circumstances, 99.9% 99.9% of the time, the way God brings about the goal of food in your stomach is through the necessary means of you getting food and eating it, right? So means really do affect ends, but God is sovereign over both uh, in scripture. So a whole lot there to think about. Thank you so much for watching. I know this was long. Uh, I hope it was helpful and leave comments under the video and I'll try to look at those and maybe I can make a video responding to those comments soon. Thank you for watching.